and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 9th, 2019, also known as Tony Awards Day. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Genetessa Fox, Peter Felicia, and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She has also has her own podcast called Spotlight on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Peter's going to join us for a segment on Frankie and Johnny, but he's actually not with us as we're recording on Sunday morning. But we'll catch up with him in a few, including trivia. Don't skip to the end. We know who you are. <laughs> Yes, right. we we have monitoring software. Yes, exactly. Shell, if you don't tell them, I don't ask, tell them about that. I ask Siri and Alexa all the time. <laughs> Who's skipping to the end? Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and SAST. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. Also, uh, last weekend we made our Tony Awards predictions. We should say that we are recording Sunday morning. Obviously, the Tony Awards have not happened. If you want to hear a podcast about that, come join us next week or listen to Today on Broadway where Matt Tamanini and I – maybe Ashley Steves. I'm not sure if Ashley's joining us. We'll uh, talk about the Tony Award wrap-up immediately following the Tony Awards. So – you will start recording about 11.05. It should be out about midnight or so. So if you really need to hear it, you can hear it right away. Michael, last week when we were talking about a Tony Awards predictions, uh, you were talking about uh, attendance af- affecting uh, – attendance of people in their shows, performers, yes. uh, affecting their uh, ability to win awards. Did you want to say more about that? Oh, yes. I, I somehow <clears> – <throat> I wanted to set the record straight because somehow I, I think I uh, – it wasn't clear uh, which I, show I was referring to. I had heard that um, actually two of the leads in Ain't Too Proud had missed more than one performance during the, the Tony voters period. And I was just saying that you know a little thing like that can really affect uh, the, the awards if – if the Tony voters can't reschedule to see someone. Uh, so I had mentioned that because I think it's significant or it can be significant. Uh, but somehow, it, it, it uh, because of the way I said it, I, I think it sounded like I was talking about Hades Town. So I just wanted to clarify because as far as I know, I mean, I haven't heard of any uh, absences at Hades Town during the Tony period. Uh, so I, I, I didn't want to give a false impression. Okay, so the four of us got over to the Broadhurst, Broadhurst, excuse me, to see Frankie and Johnny in, in the Claire de Lune. Uh, so what we're going to do here is that Peter pre-recorded his uh, take on this, and let me play that for you now. Well, what amused me the most was at the beginning where we see, um, well, veiled in darkness and with uh, the requisite sheet over them, um, Roger McDonald and Michael Shannon having sex as their characters, Frankie and Johnny. And I thought, well, you know, they always say you should start with a conflict in any play, but uh, (laughs) there wasn't much conflict here. They were both having quite the wonderful time. Uh, This is a play that's really survived, hasn't it? I mean, it's been around for a long, long time now, and there has been no attempt whatsoever to update it. Not that it needs it. I'm just reporting that there has been no attempt to update it. You hear expressions like get real, which were 
which was kind of a big thing in the 80s, we hear that movie tickets were $7. There's a reference to a VCR. There's a reference to the BMT. We don't use those <laughs> initials anymore for uh, one subway line. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much uh, indicative that um, Frankie and Johnny is staying in the period in which it's written. So this is about two people who work in a restaurant and they finally get together uh, one night. They're not sure if they should, but they do. And he is immediately smitten with her in a way that she is not with him. She's a little wary. And why shouldn't she be? He's immediately saying he loves her and uh, she's very dubious. Why shouldn't she be? He barely knows her, but he really feels a connection with her that he's never felt with anybody else. So is he right? Is she right? Should she trust? Is the problem hers? Well, who knows? Um, but all things considered, they do make a good go of it and what a nice couple they seem to be when they are getting along of course the conflict that i complained not being in the top of the play certainly comes in in the body of the play so uh <laughs> um what's really um <laughs> compelling to me is that at one point audrey mcdonald sings one section a tiny section of almost like being in love, and she gets a hand because you know we're so used to Audra singing that we uh, just automatically give her a hand after she does. But this is a rare chance to see her in dramatic. Of course, she's done dramatic roles. She was in uh, Master Class, for which she won a Tony, though there was singing involved there too, of course. And then, of course, she was in Raisin in the Sun, for which she won a Tony. So um, she's done very well dramatically. Needless to say, there are plenty of people who have far fewer than two Tonys. For performing in plays, but um, but we still think of her as a, as a singer. She certainly has made enough albums and made enough concert appearances and appearances on Broadway and musicals that we would think of her as a singer first and foremost. But here's another reminder of what a fine, fine actress she is when we come to uh, dramatic situations. Same true of Michael Shannon. No, I'm not saying there are any albums by Michael Shannon on our shelves, but what I am saying is he's a fine, fine actor and he really throws himself into this role. One tiny historical note that I found um, of more than moderate interest. At one point he refers to um, I think he says he's not the last of the Red Hot Lovers. Well, of course, there was a play called The Last of the Red Hot Lovers that Neil Simon wrote. And the reason Neil Simon wrote it was because he had seen James Coco in a play off Broadway. And he said, you know, this guy's really funny. I'm going to write a play for him. And that play became The Last of the Red Hot Lovers. But here's what's interesting. The play that Neil Simon saw um, James Coco in was called Next. And it was written by Terrence McNally. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm not saying that... Uh, remotely the Terrence McDally was was referencing that at all I mean the last of the red hot lovers was a very famous expression before Neil Simon appropriated it for his play but still I found that uh, a lot of fun so it's it's a, a fine show to go to um, you'll if you're around in the 80s you'll have a lot of touchstones that you'll uh, remember there's a reference to looking for Mr. Goodbar there's a reference to a record shop Yes. And while there's usually a New Jersey joke in so many plays, here we go back to what used to happen when there used to be Philadelphia jokes. And there's one in this play, too. So it's well worth seeing, not just for the two performers, but indeed for the play itself. And it's nice to have it back where it belongs. Peter, I almost feel as though that the explanation about the Terrence McNally and the Red Hot Lovers thing was a trivia question that we could have used. <laughs> you know? Maybe yes, we'll have indeed. to use it a year from now and see if right. people remember. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the joke about Brooklyn versus Brooklyn Heights, 
Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, right. You know, that has a whole new meeting these days in, sure the, in the resurgence of Brooklyn Heights. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, in fact, that got a big laugh. Uh, and your uh, neighborhood was mentioned as well, that she lived right near your building. She did. Yes, indeed. So uh, I'd like to run into her on the street more uh, than I have. Uh, last time I ran into Audra was in Central Park when uh, we were both going to see some Shakespeare in the park. So who knows? Maybe it'll happen again at Much Ado About Nothing very shortly. All right. So, uh, Jenna, what did you think of Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune? Well, I'm, I'm very glad that Peter enjoyed it so much, and I'm glad that so many other uh, reviewers have enjoyed it so much. But uh, quite frankly, this is not one of the plays that I feel has gotten better with age. I did see the last revival when uh, Rosie Perez and Joe Pantoliano took over for Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci, and I honestly don't remember being bothered by it at all back then. I thought it was a sweet, funny, romantic comedy drama about lost souls, finding each other, taking risks, but it's 2019, and we are a lot more woke than we were in 2003 or 1987 when the play first premiered off Broadway. And now the play just feels a lot more disturbing. Now we know that a person who insists on staying around, even when ordered to leave, isn't being romantic. That person is being threatening. And mm. throughout McNally's play, Johnny... Uh, refuses to leave Frankie's apartment even after she tells him numerous times that she wants him to go. He wants to stay and talk, and as the play emphasizes, he wants to form a real connection. Frankie just wants to go to bed. She wants to be left alone. She repeatedly asks him to leave so she can do that, and when he won't, she threatens to call the police. She even tries to walk out herself of her own apartment, and he still won't leave her alone. And not only that, he pulls all of the classic tricks we hear about in abusive relationships. He he promises that if she will do one more thing for him, make a sandwich, uh, get him a beer, do whatever, then he'll go. He tells her how bad she's making him feel. I think his line is, oh, you're making me feel about this small. Uh, and, and sorry, try that again. He tells her how bad she's making him feel. I, I think her his words are, uh, you're making me feel about this small. He twists her words around constantly to suit his own needs, what he wants. We are much more aware of these warning signs today. And while I truly doubt that McNally or director Aaron Arbus intended for Johnny to be threatening, his behavior is not romantic. Uh, Frankie even comments that the evening is going worse than looking for Mr. Goodbar. The mm -hmm. line is passed off as a joke, but it made me physically recoil because, honestly, that's where the story is logically heading. And it should come with a trigger warning for anyone who has survived an abusive relationship. What was charming 30 years ago, even 15 years ago, we understand to be threatening now. If McNally and Arbus want us to see this as romantic, McNally could have gone through his script and made Johnny less of a threatening presence. He could have removed Frankie's repeated requests for Johnny to leave. Uh, he could have kept the central theme of a passionate man desperate to form a connection and a guarded woman who doesn't want to have her heart broken again without all of the implied danger. I mean, I'm very, very glad that a woman is directing this play. But I'm sorry that Arbus didn't push harder for a firmer stance on the issues that the play presents. If Johnny is just meant to be romantic, we need to lose the threats. If he's meant to be menacing, we need to lose the romance. And this, it feels a lot like Burn This, um, it's, which happens to be from the same time period. And it also deals with a casual hookup involving a volatile man that could become a real relationship or much more likely could end up like looking for Mr. Goodbar. 
neither play translates particularly well to this new era of awareness, and they both made me rather uncomfortable at best. Uh, Fortunately, we've got incredible performances from Michael Shannon and the divine Audra McDonald. They give spectacular, beautiful performances. I mean, as we'd expect from the most Tony-honored actor of all time and a two-time Oscar nominee. So even with the implied danger, they play off of one another beautifully. They share the energy very, very well. We can argue about such glamorous, beautiful actors playing ordinary people, but that's less important than having two actors of such skill up on the stage again. Michael Shannon is just always a chameleon. I keep forgetting about the other roles I've seen him in whenever he does a play or a movie because he just disappears into each part so effortlessly. Um, I get the impression that he's trying to make Johnny less menacing, but given the dialogue he has to work with, I'm not entirely sure. In any case, he gets some great moments, especially when the character is just standing still and thinking he's just being. Uh, Shannon can wring some wonderfully powerful emotion out of stillness, and it's a really great, rare skill. Uh, And then, of course, there's Audra. She is just as wonderful as you would expect, letting Frankie's walls crack and crumble very slowly as she, uh, (laughs) I was reminded by a Jason Robert Brown line, as she opens herself one stitch at a time. Uh, She also knows how to wring emotion out of stillness, and she conveys so much with just her eyes just glaring or staring, letting her face go from anger to regret to pain. It's, It's beautiful to watch. Um, But it makes her capitulation to Johnny so much more disturbing. The character has been so worn down by life, and now she's being worn down by a man who could hurt her just as much. I mean, it's devastating to watch. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Ricardo Hernandez's set design. Um, Beautiful work creating a studio apartment that genuinely looks like a real New York City studio apartment, especially one from the 80s. Although I'm not quite sure what happened at the very end. I don't want to spoil it. But uh, the set does something that left me rather befuddled. And I didn't know why that had to be there. I I think I have an answer for that. I have an answer for that, too. Let's see if we have the same answer. Okay. All right. I I look forward to hearing that. They they use the same video wall as Anastasia. (laughs) It's the same producers. It's the same everything. Seriously, I'm pretty sure that that's true. Oh my god! Oh wow! Yeah, okay. what was your think, Michael? Oh, I was just going to say that there's no real reason except they feel they need to do something like that because it's Broadway and people want to see like some kind of big set effect, even if it's supposed to be just a naturalistic one set show in yeah. a, in somebody's apartment. <laughs> Peter does yeah. hate unit sets. Mm. <laughs> so, Jenna, what were you saying? Yes, uh, sorry. Um, and Natasha Katz's lighting design, I mean, she has to take the set from uh, darkness in the middle of the night to dawn and does a really nice job conveying different kinds of light, light from a TV, light from the ambient apartments that are spilling into uh, Frankie's apartment and does a really nice job with that. So so cheers to her. Um, there's... There's plenty to discuss with this play, and I'm sorry that this production doesn't take advantage of the fact that McNally, thank God, is still with us and could have gone through this again. I'm sorry that he didn't feel the need to address the issues that the play raises and that none of the women involved in the play 
uh, pushed harder for a, a bigger reckoning. Um, and I'm also surprised that so many of the other critics don't seem to have a problem with uh, reviving Frankie and Johnny in the Me Too era. A couple have commented on it, but it hasn't seemed to bother them, and including uh, at least one woman who raised it, you know, raised the specific hashtag and then sort of dismissed it and said, oh, it's all okay. Um, it, it boggles my mind that a lot of men have no problem with this at all, and that so many women are just seem to be shrugging it off, rather than making this a real talking point about how values have changed and about how much more aware we are of the threat women face. With uh, especially bringing up looking for Mr. Goodbar in the script, there's this constant threat that's always there. It was there from the beginning in the original script, and I'm really sorry that it hasn't been more addressed by either the creative team acknowledging this is a period piece and we should have post-show discussions about it or some think pieces written about it or by McNally himself going through and shifting the focus one way or the other. Um, It's certainly a play worth seeing for the actors, um, but trigger warnings all over the place. Uh, It was very disturbing, at least for me. Jenna, I, you know, when I'm looking for theater criticism, I generally turn to the National Review Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the one I was thinking of. <laughs> that was exactly what I was thinking of. And the National Review has a review of Frankie and Johnny that basically uses this McNally play as um, as a tool to fight against the Me Too era. That's saying, the impression See? I got as well. Yeah. See, it's not that bad. And all these hysterical women that shriek and can't control their emotions. This is this is why uh, uh, our society's out of control. And huh. I, 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 you know, knowing uh, McNally and and Tom Curdy, the producer and. Uh, they would be appalled that the National Review is using this play as this tool against uh, the Me Too era. But I'm sorry, you got to read it. You got to mm-hmm. read the play. And, yeah. And, and, and you know, it, some things maybe shouldn't be redone the way that they are. And, yeah, and that's it. And something shouldn't be redone the way that they are. And it's fine to have a period piece to say, look at how things were. As long as you go out of your way to acknowledge, we are not condoning this behavior. Yeah. As long as you go out of your way to recognize this is a period piece. This was contemporary at the time for the values of the time, but this is no longer acceptable. You now. look at, you look at uh, my fair lady up at Lincoln center and the mm. way in which mm-hmm. Eliza has changed over you know, the way in which Eliza has been portrayed not only by actresses, but in the directors and what Bartlett Sher has done with Eliza in this production up at Lincoln Center right now. And as we came out of the theater, uh, Jenna and I were just a few seats away uh, at the Broadhurst the other night when we saw this. And uh, as we came out of the theater and I and I was sort of shell-shocked about what I had just seen and could could not believe what I had just seen. And I mentioned that, wow, you know, just down the block, they're playing Burn This. Where the hell are we? Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, Michael, what was your thoughts on Frankie and Johnny? Well, I'm glad you both mentioned the Burn This connection because I was so struck by it. (laughs) 
while watching Frankie and Johnny, and I thought, gosh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing. I, I, I'm, you know, obviously it's a coincidence. It's different producers, and I don't think they got together and said, let's revive these two things with uh, with a basically very similar theme. But it's kind of amazing how similar they are in some ways. Um, I do think that uh, you may disagree. I, I think that uh, the character, Michael Shannon's character of Johnny in Frankie and Johnny, I don't think he's as dangerous as pale in in the uh, in the other play. Uh, so that uh, can I that's... interrupt you for a second? Sure. Um, it it uh, as written, uh, I think that that's true. But you know what's interesting is that they've cast both actors being six foot three or taller, <laughs> and yeah. and they they yes. seem terribly scary from the audience. Mm-hmm. You and know, of course, Michael Shannon. I don't know all of his screen work, yeah. but I know he has some uh, screen roles that are very, very scary. So that doesn't help, I guess. Uh, but all, all I meant is, yes, from the text itself, I, I still can't get over the fact that uh, in um, in Burn This, that Pale physically attacks Anna's boyfriend, and she still winds up goes with him at the end. Uh, that just, I, I just said. I, you know, I gave up at that point and I hadn't actually remembered that and I couldn't believe that Lanford Wilson wrote it that way. Uh, I, I think, again, you may disagree. To me, um, Johnny in Frankie and Johnny is, is really kind of more annoying. Uh, he just, you know, he, he does refuse to leave uh, several times. And of course, that one should not do that. Uh, and, and it is threatening to a certain extent. But another issue I have as far as that is, and, and again, you may disagree, it seemed to me that uh, that Frankie's wanting him to leave and her anger at him was not really motivated. Um, it seemed to me that, you know, I mean, they had that great sex at the beginning, and then it was fine. And then she wanted him to go but all of a sudden, it seemed to me like she became very, very angry for no real reason. Uh, and that happened two or three times. So the fact that her anger didn't seem that motivated bothered me. And not only that, but the fact that after her angry outbursts, then she immediately calmed down again. It's like, oh, you know, well, that's over with and I didn't really mean it. And you can stay for a while. Um, so I think that there are big problems in the writing. Uh, that were not, as I said to Jenna before we started recording, for some reason weren't as obvious to me in the previous production I saw. I did not see the original with Kathy Bates and uh, Kenneth Welch, I believe, but I did see the one with Edie Falco and uh, Stanley Tucci, who opened the revival. And uh, Jenna mentioned that she saw it later in the run with Rosie Perez and Joe Pantoliano. Uh, for whatever reasons, maybe we are all just a little less quote unquote woke then or maybe uh, I don't know but I I didn't I didn't have such a problem with the play in that production so maybe it was partly the direction partly the acting I I don't know Uh, or just or just progress it could just be progress but um to go back to your previous uh, one of your previous statements the re the reason that this play is here again I think is is easier to figure than burn this Tom Curdy he is Terrence McNally's life partner, as well as, uh, you know, having produced 
several of his shows, and he he seems uh, bent on bringing back all of Terence's major works to Broadway in uh, you know uh, in Terence's I guess uh, what word do you want to use uh, towards the latter part of his life to have people see them again. Uh, I I don't know if it was necessarily a good idea in this case because the play is so problematic and so dated. Uh, oh, another thing it shares with Burn This is. My God, they are both so overwritten. I think both of them are like an hour longer than they needed to be and would have been a lot more effective if they were like – if each one was like an hour and a half straight through. And uh, especially in this case, then you would have gained um, the uh, – the, I think the power of having an uninterrupted stream of action, you know, of the action taking place in real time rather than having a – completely unnecessary intermission so i um i think that that this was not something that needed to be done again and unfortunately uh from their point of view from from all i have heard i don't usually actually check the grosses but i've heard it is really really not doing well at the box office so i guess it was a mistake on that level as well um i i do always enjoy seeing Autra on stage. I think it is great to see her, uh, you know, every now and then do a non-musical role because to, you know, uh, so that we get to savor again how good she of a straight actress she is uh, just with doing uh, very naturalistic dialogue like that and and, and really um, being expert at that. And Michael Shannon, I do not think I have seen on stage since his very first thing, which was Bug off-Broadway. Um, and I remember what an impression he made in that, and so it was really great to see him again. But uh, but other than that, I agree with every word that both of you guys said, and uh, I'm just a little... Well, uh, I'm not, again, I'm not puzzled, because I think I do know why it, it did happen. Uh, I don't think it would have happened without uh, stars of the of the level of Audra and Michael Shannon, but they, but once they signed on, I think that uh, I know why it was revived. Michael uh, Michael Shannon did Long Day's Journey and Tonight to Damn it, I was ago. Just oh, about God. to ask that. <laughs> and he also did uh, something called Grace in 2012 that I must have seen, but I don't remember it. Grace, Grace, yeah. But right. you see oh, what, what I mean about him being a yeah, chameleon. Oh, that was with the uh, oh yeah, that was um, oh my god, Paul Rudd's big return where he's like the faith healer oh, or the preacher yeah. or something. Yeah. Oh, he's such that, a chameleon. Exactly, and that's what I mean. He disappears <laughs> into every role, and every time I see him, I'm like, oh, this guy's good. Who is? Oh my god, I've seen him fifty times before. But you just right. never recognize him. He disappears into every role so effortlessly. And Long Day's Journey was the one with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, no, yeah. no, no, no. Phil, that was with uh, Gabriel Byrne and Jessica Lang. Yeah, Jessica Lang over at oh, American that, Airlines. Yes. American yeah. Airlines, yeah. Oh, my, well, I should have looked that up. Sorry. Oh, no. Uh, it's funny. But, Je- Jenna and I were at uh, uh, Much Ado last night. And, stalker. Uh, it, yeah, stalker. You stalking me. <laughs> stalking me. Stalking when I, me. When I get there first, that means that you're stalking me, right? Although, I guess technically that's true. Although, hmm. since I read your email and I know where you're going, I show up the oh, first. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot. Sure. Anyway, we were at Much Ado, and Chuck Cooper was there. And uh, during intermission for Much Ado, which the intermission's like three quarters of the minutes. way through. You know? oh. <laughs> three quarters of the way through the show, the intermission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Chuck Cooper is uh, wonderful, but we're not going to review it. It's not open yet. He's really, really good. Um, seriously. Seriously. 
Chuck Cooper. Love Chuck Cooper. And mm. there's a great interview with Jenna did with Chuck Cooper on Broadway Radio from uh, two years ago, something like that. No, no, that was uh, when he did Choir Boy. That was what? Oh, in that the, was like January. Oh, that was six months ago. Six oh months my ago. God, man! I age in dog years. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> anyway, so Chuck Cooper. Uh, anyway, so during intermission, somebody on uh, the refreshments line. Uh, said, oh, you know, what has Chuck Cooper done? I was like, he was an amazing grace on Broadway. Uh, and then I got, got that confused with grace just now. We're talking about the... <laughs> anyway. So back to Frankie and Johnny. Uh, I think uh, both of you has said, have said, uh, as well as uh, some of the things that Peter said, uh, we all, we covered everything that I, I would have said about it. Uh, uh, with the only thing I might add is that I've listened to a lot of uh, a lot of interviews and read some stuff on Frankie and Johnny about this production, and it seems like that I, that this was driven by Audra. I think that Audra said she wanted to do it, and who is also very close to Terrence McNally. And, and I think that that was. Uh, the, why we're seeing Frankie and Johnny because Audra said she wanted to do it. And that was, you know, that was the motivation behind this thing. And when Audra says, you know, if Audra says, I want to read a phone book, you, you say, okay. You know. In the same way that apparently uh, Nathan Lane was the driving force behind Gary. Yeah. Exactly. Depending on who you talk to. Yeah. 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 All right. So that is Frankie and Johnny. It's in a limited run uh, through August 25th. Although, did we say this before we started recording or was it... After we started recording, uh, did were you guys talking about who you saw at Frankie and Johnny? Well, yes, I, I mentioned it. Uh, I, I I said that I had seen. You're talking about the last production? No, no, no. Uh, the the evening that we went to go see the show. Um, the evening that uh, there was a lot of stars in the audience aside from Johnny. Oh, oh, I uh, yeah. Is it are we, is it with is it the same person? I went to pick up my tickets. And I was looking for my friend uh, in front of the theater, so um, I would, you know, I was like kind of like looking for him specifically, and I and I found him, and I walked up to him, and uh, I was, you know, how they have those those barriers right in front of the theater for the bag check. Mm -hmm. So I, I had my bag checked, and he, uh, you know, the, the the staff person looked in my bag, and then I walked through the barrier, and I was standing like on one side of it, and uh, my friend was right there. He and I said, "Hi, how are you?" And he said, "Stephen Sondheim is standing right in back of you," <laughs> and he was literally one foot from me. <laughs> so, and then he sat in front of us. Uh, I mean, not directly, but in the front, in the row in front of us. So that was a little distracting, but you know. <laughs> Uh, I had uh, Fran and Barry Weisler to my right, uh, and uh, Daphne Rubin Vega. Oh, so I was wondering, you know, uh, and Daphne was Daphne was picking up uh, tickets from the press rep as well. And unless Daphne has started a podcast, um, interesting that Daphne's picking up press tickets. Hmm. So. Uh, by way of saying that if this were to be a financial success, would it extend without Audra? Could you see Daphne in that role? I could see her, but I can't imagine it's going to extend. I can't imagine either, no. Absolutely. She would be wonderful, though. Yeah. 
think. Yeah, uh, people tell me that. Well, well, Jenna saw it. People tell me that Rosie Perez was very good in it. She was. Yeah, I remember. And again, I walked into the theater all excited to see it because I really enjoyed that last revival. I thought it was sweet and funny. And I guess that made seeing it again through 2019 eyes that much more disturbing, suddenly realizing that what I recalled as being sweet and funny was not. Mm, Um, But their performances, as I recall, uh, taking with a huge grain of salt, uh, were great. They did a beautiful job. They played off of one another. I'm sorry Rosie Perez hasn't done much Broadway since then. Uh, she had terrific stage presence, as I recall. So did jo- Joey Pants. I always like that nickname. <laughs> and I remember that was on the marquee. Since they couldn't fit his full name on, it was Joey Pants on the marquee. <laughs> I mean, they did a beautiful job together. And they had great energy. They were funny. I just remember chuckling a lot and grinning and thinking this was fun. So I was expecting something like that again. It was a splash of ice water in the face. <laughs> All right, moving on. Michael, you got over to City Center to see Long Lost. Tell us about this. Yes, this is not not a great, but I would say a very good new play by one of my favorite playwrights, Donald Margulies, at Manhattan Theater Club, uh, directed by Daniel Sullivan. And it's a, I I guess you would say it's a character study of um, this successful fellow David, played by Kelly O'Quinn, or O'Coin, I'm not sure exactly how he pronounces it, uh, and his wife, Molly, played by Annie Paris, and their son, Jeremy, played by Alex Wolfe. But the the wild card here is that uh, um, David's black sheep brother, Billy, played by Lee Turgeson, shows up completely out of the blue. Uh, He first shows up at David's office, and... uh, it turns out they have quite a history um, and a pretty tragic history, actually. And they have been rather, rather estranged for quite some time. Uh, but uh, now Jeremy, it, I'm sorry, uh, Billy, the brother, uh, has come back and is trying to ingratiate himself into the family uh, because at one point he, he says – that he's dying. And uh, let's just say that uh, more than once during the course of the play, uh, that bit of information is either going to be reconfirmed or or challenged or denied. So I won't tell you how it turns out uh, and what we finally learn in the end, but that that's the kind of thing that this brother is using uh, perhaps to manipulate uh, these people. Well, I mean, whether or not it's true, he's using it to ma- manipulate them and to try to get back into their good graces. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that there are any like spectacular revelations or aha moments or uh, uh, it's not that kind of a play. It really is more of a character study. And on that level, I think it really succeeds very well, largely because of the Well, first of all, the writing, but also the direction and also really, really superb acting by all of these people. Um, Just it's this is a perfect uh, 
play for a rather small, intimate, off-Broadway space where uh, people can do that kind of very wonderful, naturalistic, almost TV or film acting in a theater. Uh, and, uh, you know, that can be very, very effective when it's done right in, in the right space, which is the case here. So I, I highly recommend it. But I, you know, I would always go to see any Donald Margulies play because he really, as I said, is, is one of my favorites. And um, so I, I think that Manhattan Theater Club has a winner with this one. All right, so that is over at City Center, and I am looking for the end date. Is it June 30th? So that is a June 30th ending on that. Uh, Michael, you also saw Cheetah Rivera in Cabaret. Oh, in her Cabaret. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, how was her Sally Bowles? (laughs) So uh, knowing that uh, you are our our, uh, scholar on Cheetah Rivera... Uh, tell us how the cabaret was. Well, I have to tell you, uh, this was one of those nights that I will remember forever. Uh, and it's so funny. You, you, this is why we have to, uh, you know, try to go see whatever we can, you know, whatever we have time for and can afford, because you never, never know when you're going to have an absolutely transcendent evening. I have seen, Cheetah do basically this exact same show at least twice before in the same venue at Feinstein's 54 Below. And of course it was always great, but there was something about this performance. It was uh, Thursday, June thir- uh, May 30th, and it uh, what 30, Thursday, May 30th at 7 p.m. And, uh, I, you know... It, it's so fascinating what goes into creating these magic evenings. I remember it was raining very, very, very heavily. It was pouring uh, right around showtime and right before showtime. Uh, so I think everyone was like really happy that they got there and considered it an accomplishment. And P.S., the place was absolutely packed. So there was that energy in the room to begin with of of everyone just – <laughs> Glad to be out of the rain, but also, um, ha- I guess, you know, happy that they had run the gauntlet and gotten there uh, despite the it raining cats and dogs. Uh, and then Cheetah came on and it was like from the first second you could just sense something was in the air and there was an extra electricity to it. And it was just one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. Uh, everyone was in the palm of her hand for every second. Uh, it might also have something to do with the fact that um, Fosse Verdon had just just ended. I believe the last uh, episode of that had just aired. And uh, although it did not get tremendous ratings from the general population, I think every certainly every uh, theater person I know watched it and uh, probably – the vast majority of people in Cheetah's audience that night. So here you have the extra thrill of, you know, seeing a living legend uh, on stage whom you've just seen portrayed in a, in a, you know, in a 
miniseries on TV. Uh, and I, and that, that kind of thing can really add a lot. So it was, it was just phenomenal. And on top of that, Cheetah was an extra specially great voice. Uh, she seemed even more relaxed and having even more fun than usual. Uh, her ad libs were charming and funny. Um, the uh, let me just quickly run down the the song repertoire, which, as I say, is similar to what uh, she's done before. But uh, nowadays, from Chicago, uh, Spider Woman medley, a lot of living to do from Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, she does a song called Not Exactly Paris by Michael Leonard and Russell George, which is a really, really sweet, uh, wistful ballad. West Side Story medley, Where Am I Going from Sweet Charity. Um, the Carousel song from Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. Uh, Sweet Happy Life a song by Louise Bonfa and Norman Gimbel. Class from Chicago, uh, which she does obviously as a, as a solo. Uh, Chief Cook and Bottle Washer from The Rink. Winter. And Love and Love Alone from The Visit. Nowadays, a reprise from Chicago. All That Jazz uh, from Chicago. And I'm Old Fashioned. And of course, there there remains a Gwen Verdon tribute. Uh, because Cheetah um, is expert at being able to <laughs> imitate Gwen's very, very distinctive voice. Uh, and so she, she does that in all of her shows. At least a little bit in the audience just adores it. Especially right after seeing... Fosse Verdon. So this was amazing. And on top of all that, uh, I brought a friend with me who is uh, 17, and he had recently played Conrad Birdie in his high school production of Bye Bye Birdie. So he and he had never seen Cheetah live before. Uh, so he was beyond thrilled and especially because she did the, his number a lot of living to do and then we went got to go backstage and take a picture with her and and she was so so sweet to him and she also said to me at one point uh Fosse Verdon came up in you know just kind of in passing and she said to me have you been watching it <laughs> and I said uh well I saw three episodes uh uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I liked a lot of it and then I had some issues with it and we didn't really talk about it beyond that. Um, I'm not sure if she's seen the whole thing or only parts of it, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe at some point we'll be able to get her perspective on it. Uh, so it, it really it really was. It was just a great, great evening for me. And, and I I almost missed it because I thought, well, I have seen this show twice before, but I I, I just felt that I should be there. I had a feeling that it was going to be special and it really, really, really was. So, uh, 54 below, uh, I, 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 it didn't exist 10 years ago. Mm. That, how important is 54 below to keeping such incredible talent exposed here? I mean, in the month of May, we had Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts together in a show, yes. <laughs> had Paolo Zott, uh, we had Mar Marcy and Zena, uh, Marcy, uh, I'm totally blank on her last name, Mar what's Marcy's last name? Heisler. Heisler and Zena Goldrich, <laughs> Taylor, the latte boy. Um, I mean, it, uh, you had Laura Osnes, uh, you had Tony Yazbek together, John Lloyd Young, I, for, I didn't even realize he was back in New York doing this mm. thing at 54 Below. Did you see John Lloyd? You have uh, the Sondheim Unplugged series, Joey Econis and Family. I mean, 54 Below is awesome. 
But yes, but they but also, also they also make room for uh, you know they have those fabulous people, but then they also make room for uh, what would you call it? You know, like more rank and file people. Yeah. You, yeah. So young talent and new talent. And so that's a really great thing about that. And, and, you know, that we've had other venues close and exactly. open over the years, several, you know, several, because it is New York city. Hello. But, um, another place, uh, brief segue here is the new theater at Birdland, uh, underneath the, the main space at Birdland, where, uh, in the same week I got to see John Davidson at 70, I forget 77, or 78 john davidson who i you know I, we rarely 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 get to see and he was in incredible voice and so so charming and funny he packed that room and uh i you know it's as i've said many many times what you pay to see these shows um even if you factor in covers and minimums is still likely to be a fraction of what you would pay for a Broadway show. So there's just nothing like it. And then plus you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, 10 feet from the person rather than a hundred feet from the person. Uh, We're very, very lucky to have so many of those venues in New York. And, and James is absolutely right. Um, That 54 below has been a mainstay in, in just the relatively brief period that it's been here. Um, I'm glad I was going to, uh, transition it to John Davidson and I didn't know if you had a, if you wanted to do a full review or just mention it, uh, about that. Well, I, I mean, he looks amazing. His voice is absolutely intact. I think he sings in the same keys he always sang in. Uh, it wasn't an evening of hits. It was a lot of original material and like really, really charming, funny, uh, mostly comedy you know, comedy and lighthearted songs. Uh, but then he wrote a beautiful song. Uh, he has two daughters um, by uh, two two different wives, and apparently one is a liberal, but the other one is an arch conservative. Wow! And he sang a song about that, and it was so touching. It almost brought tears to my eyes. Really, he also did. Um, I think the only show tune in the whole evening, if it even counts, was, of all things, Stars in the Moon hmm. uh, from Jason Songs Rebel for a New Rounds. World. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, and... Uh, he, uh, you know, you don't usually hear that from sung by a man because it's sung from a woman's perspective. But he he sang it about, you know, using the she and her pro, uh, pronouns. So he sang it about a woman, not as if he was the person who this had happened to. And it, it worked perfectly. Um, I hadn't thought I had to, to think if it would work uh, uh, with a man singing about a woman, but it did. Uh, he also did a couple of Do- John Denver songs, Country Roads, uh, and another song. Um, <laughs> uh, he did Green, Green Grass of Home, that old chestnut. And uh, it was – oh, and he – the entire evening, uh, the show was called, I believe, John Davidson Troubadour. And we thought, well, that's a somewhat odd title. But it turned out to be completely accurate because for the whole evening, he he accompanied himself on guitar. No piano, just him and a guitar and one of those – what do you call them? Those uh, boxes that um, you control like with your foot so then they create rhythm sounds. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, one of those things. Um, and it was just, just great. His guitar playing was was perfection. 
the audience loved him. He was unbelievably charming, and it was only a one nighter, I think. But I, I think, but yeah. uh, I think you're going to see him again because uh, it it was just spectacular, spectacular success. Yeah, it was only one night, May twenty seventh. Uh, yes, and uh, so I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I wanted to talk about Cheetah for one last second. That uh, her shows are May twenty seventh to June fourth. Sold out and passed us all already in our review mirror, but coming up October 8th through the 16th. Yes. Yes. So uh, if you do want to see this, I would get on the tickets now because they were sold out quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you want to see Cheetah October 8th through the 16th, and uh, you won't regret it, I will it guarantee would, it you. Just, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think how much. Um, that that might be due to Fosse Verdon, which yeah. in which she wasn't even really prominently featured. The actress playing her, Bianca Marroquin, who has played uh, her role of Velma Kelly, Cheetah's role of Velma Kelly, uh, in on and off in Chicago, I think for quite some time, uh, was not in it that much. But it just the idea that these living, some of these living legends are are still with us. You know, uh, uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it does show how old we are, <laughs> mm. but that that's fine. Uh, you know, I'm fine with that. I I just feel privileged to live in an age uh, where these people are still around and doing it, and and at the height of their powers. Think there's any chance she'll bring back the dancer's life? I don't know. You know, that was a very unfortunate experience. I, I I'm sure I've said before. A friend of mine in the business used to shake his head when he talked about that show and said it was the most one of the most mismanaged productions uh, he had ever seen um i think it should have had a, a long a much longer life and you know it's easy to to monday morning quarterback but i think that there were errors made in marketing and maybe other production errors so i uh I think she has done it uh, something called that. I think she's done something called that in in smaller venues since then. I could be wrong about that, but that might be um, a possibility to uh, you know because I don't know if we'd see it on Broadway again. Uh, but who knows? You know, maybe for a limited run. Yeah, and especially with you know, with Fosse Burden and people being interested I- in. The history from the golden age up through today, someone who has continued working throughout, you know, from the 50s up to now and is still active in the industry, still fully part of the industry, not looking at it from the outside, but getting all the stories from the inside. Not that it's, you know, juicy personal gossip like Elaine Stritch's show was, but it's a real love letter to the industry, to the dancers, to all of the people who have made these shows happen over the last 60 years. I thought it was such a splendid, beautiful show. I saw it twice. And I keep hoping she'll bring it back in some form and educate the next generation on this is what it was like. This is what happened backstage. This is what it was like to create these dances and create these moments in these classic shows. They didn't just evolve from nothing. Absolutely. Well, there is, you know, a fair amount of that in this show. It is, as you can uh, hear from the the song list that I read, there are a lot of her highlights. And she does talk about obviously Kander and Ebb and, uh, uh, you know, Bernstein, Sondheim, and, and uh, the giants, the giants that she worked with. So, the, you know, it's, it is a, in a way a mini version of 
a dancer's life. And hey, bringing it all full circle again to what we were talking about before. I was looking up, looking for Mr. Goodbar after the reference mm-hmm. in uh, Frankie and Johnny. Did you know that Fred Ebb was involved in that case? Um, yeah, but remind us. Uh, the killer went, uh, the, in the true case that inspired the uh, the story. Uh, after the killer committed the crime, he went running to his best friend's place. The best friend knew Fred Ebb and called Fred Ebb to say, my friend just confessed to a murder. What do I do? Wow. Oh, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I am oversimplifying it significantly, but you know, I'm, according to Wikipedia, which is never, ever wrong and has never steered us in the wrong direction. Of course. Of course not. Never. But just from my cursory research into what inspired that story, looking into examples of violence against women, suddenly there's this name I recognize in the breakdown of this crime and how it unfolded. Mm. And apparently the killer's friend called Fred Ebb saying, what do I do? My friend just committed a murder. Oh, my God. Hmm. Wow. All right. So, uh, Michael, you also had a very busy week having attended the Theater World Awards and the Drama Desk Awards. So why don't you tell us about these ceremonies and how, what you thought about them? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, there was the first Drama Desk Awards I had been in uh, to since, uh, I guess, 2007 uh, for a number of reasons. But that, So that's quite a, a lag. Uh, the last time I went... They were still doing them at uh, LaGuardia High School, but then not too long after I I, uh, I stopped going, they moved to the town hall, which is a really wonderful venue for them. And I, um, you know, because the uh, I am a member of the Drama Desk, but because everyone in the Drama Desk is a journalist, they don't give press comps, uh, so you you do have to buy your ticket. Uh, even if you are a member, but um, they had, you know, full price tickets at sixty-eight dollars uh, for the, I guess the, you know, the rear mezzanine or balcony or whatever it's called, and it's it's really not. It wasn't a bad seat, so I thought, well, that's that's not so much to spend uh, to see all those people uh, win the awards and and see some wonderful performances and to be among amongst all of those people. Um, I had uh, I did, took some really nice photos at the uh, the red carpet beforehand, uh, which I can uh, maybe share some of those with you. But it was it was really a wonderful evening, and um, I have to say my two peeps uh, who I did um, uh, Q and A's uh, interviews with uh, live Q and A interviews with during the season Celia Keenan Bolger for To Kill a Mockingbird and Santino Fontana. For Tootsie, they both won in their categories. So not that that not that that was a big surprise in either case, but it, it made me feel good that they won, uh, very well deserved, uh, in their categories uh, for. But but you know so many great, so many great uh, actors up in 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 and and designers and directors and writers in uh, in so many categories. It was really a wonderful evening and and. 
although it was uh, three hour, uh, almost three hours, or maybe it was more like two forty-five without a break. Uh, I, it, I felt like it moved very quickly, and the pacing was excellent, and it was very well produced. They have a new production team this year, but other than a couple of little glitches of projections of the names of the uh, nominees uh, in the wrong order, uh, it, it went very, very smoothly, um, and so I, I think. It, it was a it was a wonderful evening, and I was glad that I was there. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, uh, um, at the town hall, as I say, which is a great venue for that kind of that kind of a show. Uh, so I was happy that I went to that. And the Theater World Awards, um, I, I have attended for quite a, a number of years in a row. Um, this year, they were at. Um, uh, the Neil Simon Theater, and which was an improvement over last year when they were uh, <laughs> at Circle in the Square on the set of Once on This Island, uh, which was a little weird. Um, but the uh, let, let me, uh, since there are so few, relatively few winners, let me say all of their names. It's Gabenga Akinagbe for To Kill a Mockingbird, Tom Glynn Carney for The Ferryman, Sophia and Caruso for Beetlejuice. Uh, Patty Considine for The Ferryman, James Davis for Oklahoma, Michaela Diamond for The Share Show, Bonnie Milligan for Head Over Heels, Simone Missick for Paradise Blue, Jeremy Pope for both Choir Boy and Ain't Too Proud, Colton Ryan for Girl from the North Country, uh, although he was also in Alice by Heart. I saw him uh, – be excellent in both of those shows. Um, Stephanie Styles, Kiss Me Kate, and Phoebe Walter-Bridge for Fleabag, and also the Dorothy Loudon Award to Hampton Fluker for uh, All My Sons. Uh, these, uh, you know, the Theatre World Awards, as we've mentioned many times, is for um, uh, how did they phrase it? Uh, it's for a significant debut performance, not necessarily uh, someone's very first role on or off Broadway, but their first reviewable role where they first uh, are allowed to make uh, a big impression and, and really impress the critics. Um, so that uh, that was a wonderful evening as also. And, and our friend Peter Felicia <clears throat> As always, did a very charming and informative job of, of hosting it. Um, oh, back to the uh, drama desk just briefly. There was a, there weren't too many surprises, but I guess I would say there was one. Uh, although Tootsie won for music and lyrics and book, the best musical award went to the prom, and. Uh, and it was enough of a surprise that Joel Gray, who read the nominees and then the winner, uh, had a very obvious tone of surprise in his voice when he read the prom. Not not that he was implying that he didn't think it should win, but just that it it, it didn't seem like it was going to go that way. And I really uh, that that kind of warmed my heart because I like both shows, but I have a special place in my heart for the prom, and I was glad that it won. I I don't imagine it will pull the same trick at the Tonys, but if it did, I would not I would not be unhappy at all. I think it's a wonderful show. So we'll. We'll see uh, what happens tonight. So, uh, yeah, we are in 12 hours from now. Hopefully it'll be wrapped up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, hopefully. Uh, or maybe maybe 13 hours from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, Michael and Jenna, do 
this is your last opportunity to make <laughs> any observations, changes in thoughts, uh, put your finger in the wind, see which way it's blowing. Uh, anything that you want to add about what we should see tonight at the Tony Awards? Jenna? Uh, Michael, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just say that I hope that the in memoriam section is done properly. And I especially hope that they figure out some way to give uh, full tribute to Marin Maisie because she yes. was such an amazing talent and an incredible woman. Um, there's been such an outpouring of emotion and, and grief and sadness and, but also uh, joy in her, in her beautiful career and how much she was loved by everyone in the industry. So I hope that that is not given short shrift. And what I hope is something I know will not happen, but I keep hoping for it anyway. I want all of the awards to be televised. I want every recognition to be up there live. I want every honoree to get a chance to give a speech. Um, they used to be able to do this. They could do it in two hours. Uh, mm. I was talking with a friend about, the, what was it, the 71 awards when they celebrated the previous 25 years oh, of the Tonys with performances from 25 best musical winners in two hours and still had time to get all of the awards in. H how? I have to watch that to see oh, how that works. I have. It, the, do you have the video, Jenna? Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll it's get a, a VHS copy, tape. James. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. Oh, I have it on DVD. I'll make you a copy. <laughs> oh, great. And, Alec, I mean, Alex Cohen gave it to me. Oh, God bless. Yeah. But, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It was two hours, right? It was not three. I it think was, that's right. Yeah, it was a two-hour show, and they managed to get every award in. Every winner got a chance to give a speech. This was Sondheim's first uh, Tony win for company. Wow. And, and they also, had, weren't there four hosts? Uh, yes, I think Angela you're right. Angela Lansbury, Anthony Quinn, Anthony Quayle. And I can't remember the last one, uh, but yeah, that was that was an unbelievable year. It was incredible. And it was all of two hours and they were able to celebrate so many people. Marin Maisie deserves a full tribute for all the work she did over her career in the theater. And the fact that, you know, I, I loved that Jason Daniels speech was presented online, that we get to see that you know, shared around. But people tuning in just for the evening, they're not going to get to see the whole thing. They're not going to get to see that entire tribute. And they're being cheated. And I'm, I really am disgusted with the whole we'll present half of the awards uh, before the ceremony mm. gets underway and you just get to see some clips of the acceptance speeches. I think that's doing a great disservice to so many people who work so hard to make so much theater happen. Um, it's, it's, it's cheating them. It's cheating the audiences. Uh, theater does not happen in a vacuum. It's not just the actors. It's not just the writers. There are so many people who deserve their moment to shine. This is to celebrate these what forty nine theaters? Uh, uh, how many? How many theaters? Broadway make, theaters forty one. Forty one. Okay, forty one theaters uh, for the course of one year are putting on all this incredible art. This is their one night to get a national uh, spotlight, and so much of the uh, of the ceremony is not live. And now they it, it's 
it just feels like it's cheating them. And I really hope this is the last year that mm. this happens. I hope by next year well, they bring it back. Oh. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, but <laughs> it will not. I fully, not I am until... fully aware that it will not happen. But I am pretty I sure that. Uh, you know, uh, Matt Temanini totally disagrees with me on this. I, I fully believe in five years from now, uh, we will not have a broadcast on CBS. Maybe, but, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, James, several people give the argument that although the, the audience is not huge in terms of numbers, that the demographic is so prime in terms of, you know, um, uh, disposable income that uh, that the that it is still worth it. So I I don't know the you know the specifics of the numbers, but that is an argument that it and, will stay on CBS. It, and I also would argue that there is, especially with uh, uh, more shows geared towards a younger audience, I think there is a resurgence in younger fans who will yeah. want to see these clips and will demand to see these clips, whether they move the awards to streaming and don't have that's it on network. I'm, yeah. That's what I'm saying is that it, yeah, it's yeah. not going to be, I don't think it'll be on CBS broadcast. And, and as for the younger audiences, the younger audiences are not showing up for be more chill. So, mm, uh, fair you enough. know, while, fair uh, you know, I'm not sure that Broadway producers are still going to buy this. Uh, we're going to motivate the younger audiences. Be More Chill had, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of streams of their mm. cash recording from Two Rivers uh, mm. Theater, and it hasn't turned into any box office for Be More Chill. And I, I, I would expect that Be More Chill, which was the hot show, the must-get ticket, um, while it was off-Broadway last year, uh, has turned into a financial bust on Broadway. Yeah, but I, I hear that there are lots of young people at, at Hades Town. Uh, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, uh, well, Hamilton, and, Hades Town, Dear Evan Hansen, yeah, Wick, yeah. Wicked, they, uh, you know, they're still, uh, you do have your successes. Yeah, and we're getting them while they're young, Evita, getting them while they're young. <laughs> so. Uh, two more things about the Tonys quickly. I, uh, um, for people who live in the New York area or in New York, I'm told I haven't picked it up yet, but today's Times has apparently these unbelievable photos, a dressing room photos of um, – uh, I'm not sure if they're all Tony winners. I guess maybe they are in the, in their dressing rooms, uh, and apparently they're like very large format, gorgeous photos. It's a whole section. Uh, have either of you picked this up yet? No, but my mother called me early yesterday morning to say, "I'll save this for you. Keep it." Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to, I've got to run out and and get it when I do my laundry. But then the other thing is, did you guys see this was so fabulous? The Times did a, uh, an an article on uh, memories of people who were Tony nominees fifty years ago oh, uh, wow. in 1969. People like you know, people who are obviously are still with us: James Earl Jones, Jane Alexander. Uh, Sandy Duncan, uh, all these fabulous people. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm reading it, I'm reading it, and then they get to Angela Lansbury, who won for Dear World that year. And they said, you know, Miss Lansbury, um, you know, what are your memories of Tony Knight in 1969? And I'm sorry, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's something like, she says, my darling boy, please, I don't remember. She said, I really don't remember what I did last week. <laughs> 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 and they're like, thank you, Miss Lansbury. <laughs> that's, 
1969, it was the season of Hair versus 1776 and the arrival of a young actor named Al Pacino. Yes. Mm. Yes, it was quite a year because um, apparently there I – don't, I, I don't remember if I actually watched it, but there was controversy because Hair um, – was to have been nominated the previous season, but uh, there was some controversy about the cutoff date was changed that year or something like that. And uh, not only with hair, but there was um, that several of the shows were upset that they hadn't been nominated the year before. So hair was nominated uh, basically a year late. And then there was also this feeling of, uh, you know, the country was having a seismic shift in, in culture in 1969. Uh, and so it was kind of the old guard against the new and the, the hair people felt that they weren't accepted uh, and so there was all of that going on, uh, an incredible time. We just can't really recreate the feeling that existed then. So 1776 coming back to Broadway. Uh, yes. I can't wait. Diane, Diane Paulus, you know, Yay. who directed, who directed the last revival of hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe she'll bring some watermelons with it. So did you guys see that production? The swimming with watermelons? Diane Paulus's. Oh no! Diane no. Paulus did a a play called "Swimming with Watermelons." It's very, very avant-garde downtown type of thing. <laughs> it's interesting. Diane Paulus avant-garde? No. Shocking, <laughs> shocking. <laughs> Evo Van Hova has perfect uh, perfected his cloning tool. He will now direct everything <laughs> forever. Eva Van Hova looked at Diane Paulus and said, hold my beer. Hold my beer. Exactly. <laughs> I think I'm going to put a large, scary dog in this production. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we get on to trivia, and there is trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to... Apple Podcasts for you. You know, Apple made this announcement last week that they're changing the iTunes app, and I think that yes. the Apple Podcast app is not going to change, but we'll, we'll stay on top of you. And if you ever have a problem re getting our show, email me, and uh, we'll figure out what's going on. iHeartRadio also plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get to Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, photos of John Davidson at Birdland uh, on May 27th. So check that out. And Michael, you're going to send me over the Drama Desk uh, pictures, or should we just link to your Facebook account? or something? I saw the great pictures on Facebook. Actually, if you could, is it easy for you to do that? That would probably yeah. be simplest. Yeah. yeah, I'll link over to Facebook. Uh, Michael's great, uh, Andre DeShields, that photograph yeah. of Andre <laughs> DeShields. Love, Michael, just you're so multi-talented. It's oh, awesome. All right, so uh, let's get on to our recording of Peter and the Trivia. Hi, Peter. Can you give us the answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, what Sondheim song from the 70s is also the name of a fictional musical that's a musical within a musical in a genuine hit Broadway musical? Well, the answer is Pretty Lady, because it's a song in Pacific Overtures, Sondheim's uh, show in the 70s, and it's also the name of the fictitious musical in 42nd Street. 
Tony Janicki, who finished in third place the week before, mm-hmm. retained his first place crown with this one. He was followed by Carrie Winslow, Deb Popple, Sean Logan, Brian Kess, Michael Weaver, and Broadway's cutest couple, Doug Strassler and Alyssa Marr. This week's question. A fight director and a star who were once married are both represented on Broadway at the moment. Who are they? And to what shows are they connected? All right. If you have an answer to that, you need to email me at trivia at broadwayradio.com because Peter will not be checking his email this week. So if you email Peter directly, you're not part of the competition. So (laughs) trivia at broadwayradio.com, and I will let you know next week if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier and Janetessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Never forgetting his home on the range. In 2016, Herr Trump was elected, fueling the fires in Beto's hometown. What should he do to stand up to this madman? Run against Cruz and get rid of that clown. So they saddled up and then out of El Paso rode Beto and Amy through every county spreading the word. Raising more money than all those before him. Trouble stump for Cruz. Oh, that's absurd. Down to the wire, a hell bent on winning. He came so close, but he lost in the end. Nevertheless, we all knew he made history. There in red Texas, he made purple friends. Now he rides like the wind, and he's far from the West Texas town of El Paso. Got his rhythm and he'll make us rhyme. Yes, Beto's the one who can bring us together. Beto's the man, the man for our time. Thank you for the melody, Marty Robbins.